how hard did you push it till I black out? Yes. Numerous times, yes. What's happening, municipals? This is your boy, Big C, and Ashton with us. We have a special guest here. Um, a writer, um, a podcast host for one of me and Ashton, I would say probably our favorite podcast outside of our own, um, The Fried Egg. We have Garrett Morrison with us. Um, how are you doing, Garrett? I'm doing great, and I'm honored to be second place on that list. You know, number one, Municipals, number two, the Fried Egg Podcast. I, you know, I really I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. You know, else. even with the no laying up sign right behind Ashton, right there. <laughs> it's, well, okay. I, it's okay I, I, if you put I, I, no laying up above. That's a great podcast, too. They're, they're well, fantastic. No, right here, I'm not sure this yet, but I've got a uh, the large version of the Pasa Tiempo Greens poster right here. Oh, sweet. Uh, as, a, as a Bay Area person, you, you, you got to have it. But you missed last week, or I guess when this will come out will be the last recording of last year when Chris said that outside of his career, uh, having a baby was, the, was like not the next best thing. I was like, Chris, just put the baby number one. Put the baby here. Club champion can be a couple rungs down. Yeah, it's great. LA golf shafts, this hyperspeed bullshit. Frankie's number one. We're just going to keep it up there. So. so Chris is off to a rugged start as a dad, in other words. Already already not ranking his baby high enough. It was a bad take. Um, I got roasted for it. It, it is what it is, but... Look, we've all been there. We're very familiar yeah. with bad takes at the fried egg, and in fact, we we sort of embrace them and and continue them and and explore them, you know. And and that's part of the beauty of this medium. I, I've gotten multiple yeah. um, architects wrong. Um, I actually last week had to that's apologize true. for a take because I called um, Gil Hans's um, Gil Hans's guys cavemen, and it's actually uh, Tom Dope's guys. Um, so. No, Wait, no, no, Johansson's guys are cavemen. There you go, you switched them around. You know what? Because Ashton corrected me. Now I know it's correct. And I, now, I'm, now I'm messing <laughs> my head up. Now you've got the yips yeah. with it. It's it's sort of like yeah. what Brendan Porath on the Shotgun Start does with uh, the Pellies, with Scott Pelly and Keith yeah. Pelly. Yeah, you've got the <laughs> you've got the caveman yips. And that's okay. That That's fine. You know what? And a lot of those guys who work for Doke slash Hans are the same guys, too. You know, there are plenty who go back and forth between them. So so you're completely justified in calling them all cavemen, as far as I'm they're, concerned. They're playing the dirt. They're all cavemen. There you go. Okay, you're going to be a great guest because we're two morons. Like you're just you're just, you're just pandering to our, our, our tripping all over ourselves. I, I'm already <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like I am really pandering so far. I'm approving of everything that you're saying, and that's that's how this is going to go. Okay. And, and now to take Chris out, I picture Chris, you know, just like going into work, just like listening to our own podcast every day. So let me go back in the archives, listen to episode four. Like that's how I picture Chris in the shower, listen to him talk about cavemen. It's like okay, I don't know. No, no more listening to our podcast, Chris. Listen to other stuff. Like, actually, today I was listening, Garrett, to um, your pod with Bama Bearcat about uh, golf in Japan. That's like one of my just, mm. I just want to go play golf in Japan. It's that simple. Like, such yeah. a cool, such a cool episode. Yeah, that was a really fun one. I learned a lot that I didn't know in that episode. And it sort of reminded me of how big the world of golf is. 
because, you know, at, at the Fried Egg, we cover mainly American golf. We are a U.S.-based company. That's basically what we can do. We really don't have the the budget to go on spectacular trips to South Korea or New Zealand or Japan. So we, we cover U.S. golf, but it was really fun to find out about Japanese golf and all the different things that they do there and the different kinds of courses. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a big, fascinating world out there. Yeah. And I'll also give you a shout out to, I have a, a friend who's, who's Japanese and um, she's not a golfer, but we were, we were talking about it last week and she actually said that she appreciated how you guys started off by saying like, hey, we have an outsider's perspective here. Um, just okay. because she was saying that a lot of people sort of like to come with the perspective of like, this is how it is. And it sort of like, came in just because you've come to Japan for like one week and eaten some noodles and played some golf, like doesn't mean you actually know what's going on. I I did not want to portray two white American men (laughs) as the experts on Japanese golf. (laughs) That was, I I wanted to make that clear from the outset. (laughs) hundred percent. Well, Well, also Chris, I guess a good place to start is like how, tell the people how you two met, like how this came to be is I remember the text message that said, you're not going to believe, oh God, I'm doing the, you're not going to believe thing. You're not going to believe who I just, uh, who I just fit. So tell the people how this happened. Yeah. So Chris, you want to do that one? So actually, um, the company I work for, as everybody knows, I don't even need to say club champion, um, actually sponsors the fried egg. Uh, and so with that sponsorship, the guys that are on the podcast or work with the company were able to come into their local club champion and get fitted for some clubs. So I was emailed by our marketing program, um, saying, Hey, Garrett lives in the Portland area. He's going to come in. Um, here's his email, contact him, see what works for him and we'll get him into the shop. And they gave me kind of I think we did a long game fit for you. So we did all your woods, basically driver through hybrids. We did the woods, yeah. Yep. And funny story there, Garrett actually halfway through it kind of stops and he goes, we're getting pretty deep. I didn't realize how many clubs we could actually like kind of squeeze in here (laughs) because I I didn't want to rip you off. I didn't want to like, uh, you know, I felt like I was walking away with a lot because frankly, I play, I play woods and hybrids up pretty high in my bag. (laughs) We went pretty deep in the woods and hybrids. And in the thing is they didn't give me a budget or tell me anything that I had to stick to. So whatever was in that long game sector, I was going to go with. So we didn't get in trouble. We got we got Garrett set up with a really good set. How are you liking them? I haven't talked to you since you've been playing with them. I'm really enjoying them. It, it's great to go get fit and just be able to be secure and confident about what you've got in your bag so that you don't go searching for other things. So, you know, there's the the Rogue ST driver and uh, a four wood and a seven wood is is basically what we ended up going with. And then a <laughs> this is the weapon here, uh, a five hybrid, a tailor made stealth five hybrid um which is like 25 degrees and and that thing's a weapon i mean it the ball just goes straight up in the air in a good way and uh and lands softly and you know like my club head speed isn't the lowest in the world but i i don't have a lot of pop really and so was above average to what a a average golfer is so i mean you Right. You definitely have game. Yeah. You find contact very well. You know, that's 
that mm-hmm. was something that we found out. The contact wasn't an issue. That wasn't something we were trying to find. It was just maximizing your your accuracy, finding more fairways, and getting you a little more distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that was, uh, yeah, that was really the outcome. And you know, I I have you know, grown accustomed to using like a 24 or 25 degree hybrid. And I think more people should do it. You know, I guess some people have problems with hybrids, but it's, uh, you know, compared to a five iron, if I'm, if I'm hitting a five iron, once I get down to that, you know, modern five irons around, well, they can go down really low now, but the five iron in my, uh, you know, set of irons that I have now is like 26 degrees or so. Once I get down into that area, it's getting hard to get the ball as high in the air as I want it to be. And it, it's starting to kind of, um, there's sort of an accordion effect <laughs> with my uh, six iron at that point. You know, my, I, I've gotten on a launch monitor before and, and seen what my carry distance is with a six iron versus a five iron. And the five iron is just not going that much farther. And I think that's the case with a lot of people. That, you know, they have their irons, they think, okay, I need everything down to a four iron. Well, most of the time, I don't think they're hitting their five iron much farther than a four iron. And and that's why this five hybrid is such a such a good club, because it clearly goes farther than my six iron. It's a different club. It serves a different purpose in the bag. And uh, and so, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. And yeah, enjoying the life of the seven wood as well. Um, that's a that's a new one for me. And so that's uh, that's been cool. And so you're you're not the one thing we found out was you're not a high ball hitter and you're not a super spinny, um, you know, player as well. So that's one thing right. I would tell people, if you're not a high ball hitter, you're not a spinning, you know, you don't spin the ball a lot, you should venture into a forward. And that's why we found that, you know, works really well for you because one, you're not going to lose distance. You're, you're the minuscule amount of degrees between a five or a three wood and a four wood is one and a half degrees. So all it's doing is getting yes. you a little bit more pop off the face getting you that height to carry it further and we're in the pacific northwest so carry is king out here we're not getting rollout throughout most yes. of the year so is, is yeah especially important yes. so as long as i can keep the ball in the air for you that was that was the most important thing but kind of how your bag is set up is very similar to ashton except we call him hybrid boy because he only has a three wood and then what three hybrids in your a bag? bunch of hybrids strong well i i used to I, I changed it a bit so chris got me fit into i now play i mean i, I just feel bashful because of bryson but i use like la golf shafts which helped mm-hmm. me so i now have a five iron in the bag but what i had previously was i had a 25 degree that was my five iron and then i had a four hybrid and then i had my 2008 cleveland high bore and then i was trying to get chris to help me to find like a three wood I was gonna, I was I was gonna have four. Now uh-huh. it's down to two, but I've yes, there's been a lot of people look at my bag and they're like, so it goes six iron hybrid 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 driver. It's like <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Chris finally fit me into a three wood that works, but yeah, I mean I, to your point, I mean the reason I loved that, especially that twenty five degree club, is you just swing and it goes two hundred, you know, goes right up in the air. I mean, I used it last weekend and from, I, I kind of, I clicked it down a little bit to make that my four, but I had two ten in and it actually hit and, you know, like, I don't know, it just hit and stopped. And 
from t- <laughs> it feels like cheating, right? From like yeah. two from two ten, the ball just hits and stops. Like, right? Okay, that's great. I mean, and even on how good you are, I mean, you're not going to do that. But and that's the difference between us and pros, right? I think what I think the most like Rory's drives are amazing, but watching those guys hit long irons way up in the air. That's just the gear that I don't have. I don't think mm-hmm. many of us have. And so it's like the fact that we have technology is huge. I think actually Andy had on uh, when he was talking to Ogilvy, I think Ogilvy actually pointed out that he thought the biggest cheat in golf essentially was the hybrid, right? Because he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, driver helps. But he's like the fact that you do not have to hit long irons up in the air. I, it's an under talked about part of technology where nobody's saying you're in hybrids, but you know, for me and you is just like Sunday golfers. Like it's, it's a huge game changer. Yeah. Yeah. The long iron used to be the ultimate test of ball striking. And yeah. you know, there are players who still play long irons because they have problems with hybrids. And, and so, you know, that's kind of a self sorting that happens at the professional level, but for people who can hit a hybrid, well, it's an absolute weapon. And, you know, something I noticed, like people, most male players should not be modeling the tops of their bags. I don't think off of PGA tour pros like that's ridiculous. It's not the same game, but if you look in the bags of LPGA tour pros, then you start seeing some trends that are a little more similar to what the trends should be among say the, the average middle-aged male player. Now the average middle-aged male player is not going to hit the center of the club face as often as an LPGA tour pro or, or really anything like it, obviously, but the speed, the pure speed might be somewhat similar. And you know what you see in a lot of LPGA tour pros bags is a hybrid up around 25 to 27 degrees. You know, you Nellie Corda, has one she has like a 25 or 26 degree hybrid and mm-hmm. you know and so so i asked the question to to any you know average amateur male player are are you better do you have more speed than nelly corda and and most of the time that answer is no i don't have as much speed as nelly corda but she she finds usefulness in that higher lofted hybrid and you can see why once you get fitted to a proper one with the right shaft the right head it's uh yeah, it, it makes things a lot easier, maybe too easy. Well, one thing I'll tell you is, you know, as a club fitter and within our company, we, the amount of people that I fit in over a four iron, so three iron, two iron, even in driving irons, um, is less than 20%. So, you know, in the, the people that I'm fitting into driving irons or two and three irons are usually like really good AJGA players, like youth players like kids or college players. And mm-hmm. and it's usually always men. I don't think I've ever fit a woman ever or anybody that plays in mid-ams or, you know, over the age of, you know, 35 in two iron, three iron setups. The majority of people now are going with seven woods. That's, I mean, probably one of our biggest upticks in, in club sales right now. Um, and... You know, I've even fit a lot of people in nine woods just because some guys can't hit hybrids. And so, you know, they'll hit a three wood really well, but they still need to fill that gap in the bag. So the seven wood, nine wood and what Callaway considers the heaven wood, which is like in between a seven and nine. um, Those are all really popular as of now. And you're seeing more people on tour even playing the seven wood. 
Yes. Yeah. Well, it's sort of the new five wood in a lot of ways because the loft is sort of yep. similar. But yeah, I've seen there, there's been a lot of buzz around seven woods. I, I think Dustin Johnson might yep. uh, occasionally sort of uh, goof around with one. And Jason Duffner has had one forever. Um, and so, yeah, there are some there are some good models out there of the kinds of <laughs> clubs that people should be looking at. I, I just think it's it's way too common to to see those four irons, especially now that a lot of kind of uh, you know big manufacturer four irons are like nineteen like degrees or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, like my four iron. That's gonna be that's gonna be really hard to hit, even if if it's beefed so up. I play the Hanma yeah. um, the Hanma forged irons and. Mine are all three degrees strong compared to what standard is now. So, like, my pitching uh-huh. wedge, I play at 40 degrees. And that's most people's nine iron. Uh, and so mm-hmm. my four iron is most people's two irons. You know, it's 17 degrees. So wow. people, you know. In, do you do you add a little bit of loft to it in your swing? Uh, I do. I'm a high ball, high spin yeah. hitter. So that's why I do play so there it really, is. Yeah. you, need you know. Um, strong lofted clubs. Ashton's seen it. I yeah. had, I, I was using a loner driver um, when we did our Vegas trip, it, just because I was waiting for my new driver to come in, and it was. This is why you get fitted because I don't <laughs> think I've ever driven the ball worse in my life than on that Vegas trip that we were on. It was like, it, it, it was it was 220 yard pop-ups essentially I, I was hitting my i was hitting my 19 degree hybrid like like 20 yards past chris's driver but <laughs> yeah but no it's yeah no i i i just think that like i think in general across the board whether it's clubs or playing if you take the ego out you take your medicine you just and again go in there and just listen to someone like chris it makes a huge difference. But Garrett, I'm curious for you. I mean, it's funny. I feel like I, you know, know you a little bit just through like listening to your, your voice a lot. But you know, I feel like I have a sense of like Andy's game. I sort of have Brendan's game too. Sort of like Brendan playing like once in a while and have like 19 kids. But I don't have any sense of, of kind of your golf game. So it's like, what are, are you working on something? Like we kind of just like we have people on for the first time to talk about their golf game and like mm-hmm. what are you aspiring to do? Or it's like not aspiring to do anything, just play and have fun. Like what is your golf game like? Well, well, Chris can probably give some insight into that. I, uh, and, you know, the, the, the low ball and low spin is that, you know, I play a, a right to left. I'm a right hander. I play a right to left shape and uh, I'm pretty consistent. You know, uh, my my uh, the the thing that I can do is hit a lot of fairways, and uh, then you know I have a I have a pretty solid short game. Um, I'm a nervy putter, and I am not terribly consistent with my irons. I don't think <laughs> I uh, you know I'm, I'm not always finding the the right level in contact with my irons. Sometimes it's a, a little bit fat. Sometimes it's a little thin, and and so that's something to work out. But. Uh, that's that's sort of the outlines of my game. When I play really well, when I have my best rounds, it's when my iron game turns on a little bit. Um, when I have an average round, I'll hit a lot of fairways and I'll get some decent up and downs. And, and that's basically what it is. I don't think that I am going to improve that much more in my life. Uh, I would like to, and I work on it a little bit. I do go to the range on occasion and I, I like to practice short game and, and that's probably why I'm, I'm decent at that. But 
you know, like, especially now I have, I have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. And so there's not a whole lot of time to work on the golf game. Now, my hope is that my kids will eventually want to go to a golf course with me right now. My son is willing to go to the driving range with me. And sometimes we do that and that's really fun, but I don't want to push it too hard. I hope that just at some point they both come to me and say, yes, what we want to do is go play golf. And, uh, and so I, I hope that eventually that will happen, but you know, it, it it, it, to give people an idea of of my history in terms of playing golf, I didn't play competitively when I was younger. I played com- you know, competitive water polo. I was a competitive swimmer. Golf was not my game when I was younger. I liked playing it. My dad was passionate about it. I liked golf courses early on. I read a lot about golf when I was a kid, but I was never as into playing it as I was into reading about it and thinking about it and following it. I think that as I've gotten into my thirties, this is probably the time when I'm most interested in playing golf as I've ever been, um, in, in a weird way. Uh, because when I was a kid, I I just, you know, it wasn't going out and playing golf. I did it on occasion with my dad, but, but it really wasn't my passion to try to get better at the game. That kind of leads us into kind of the second convert or question we had was, you know, when you go out and play, is do you go out and play to shoot a score, or is it more of the the point of seeing the architecture and experiencing the course? When you go out and play, what's the most important thing to you? Um, is it camaraderie with friends shooting a specific score or actually just experiencing either a new course or reinvigorating a course that you already love? Well, well, this is kind of a punt, but it's different things in different scenarios. It can be any of those things, really. Probably most often when I'm playing golf, it's going to be about the course and about the architecture because I don't play an awful lot when I'm home. Um, I have a lot going on in my family. I have a lot going on in the job. And uh, there's just not a whole lot of time to go out and play regularly. Sometimes I do when I'm home, but, you know, it's not frequent. So a lot of my golf is played on the road when we're on company trips, going to see new courses that I haven't seen before. And when I'm playing that kind of golf, it really, I, I really am outwardly focused on the golf course, trying to take in as much as I can. Afterwards, I'll, I'll take notes, and I'm not really focusing on how I'm playing. It's not that I don't care how I'm playing, but it's not, that's not the point of my being out there. And I don't like prepare. I don't really do anything to make sure that I play well. Um, and so that's most of my golf. There are other times when I'm playing at home or if I'm playing a course that I've played before that it's much more about the company. Um, Sometimes I really like playing by myself. I don't do this as often as I used to. Uh, When I was uh, a teacher, you know, my summers would be free. This is before I started working for the fried egg. I was an English teacher. And, uh, you know, my kids would be doing something, my wife would be at her job, and I would get to go out and play golf, and I would often do it by myself. And in those situations, it would be very much about just trying to, you know, focus on something, you know, this golf game that is challenging and absorbing and get in 
if I can, a, a flow state sort of and take my mind off everything that's going on in my life. And that that was really would be the point of playing golf in that kind of situation by myself, just going out to to do it, to, to you know, and, and often I would I would I would try to, you know, play well and, and, and see how well I could play. But that was less the point. It was more about, you know, doing some kind of mental maintenance and uh, and and that's something I really love doing. So, I, it, you know, I think golf can be many different things. It's not always about the architecture, but if I'm playing a new course and it's got an interesting design, that's probably what I'm going to be thinking about the whole time. When you're at home, what in, in let's say your your wife goes, hey, get out and get out and play. What course around you is the the go to staple course that you're going to get out and, and try to get around in? I don't have a big go to course. When I'm home, I'll often play with my dad. Uh, he lives nearby, and uh, you know, there's a couple of local courses out here. I live in Happy Valley, which is in the southeast suburbs outside of Portland, and. Uh, my dad lives in the Estacada area and there are a couple of local courses between us that we like to go to mountain view golf course and Springwater, which is a nine hole golf course. They're, they're both, uh, you know, really pretty and everything, but I don't think anything super special in terms of, uh, design, but, but they're fun places to go play. If I want to go play like a, a nice, you know, semi-serious round of golf, often stone Creek in Oregon city, is is a great place. It it drains wonderfully, which is a big plus in Oregon. And there are some really good holes out there. There are some stinkers as well, but that's okay. Um, it's a it's a beautiful spot. They do a great job, kind of uh, being custodians of the environment out there. And I think that's really the important thing, more than any nitpicks about the about the design that I might have. And so I'll often go there. I always enjoy myself at at Stone Creek. I like going to uh, to Heron Lakes if I want a little bit of a challenge. Go play Great Blue. That's another place that's that's pretty affordable and offers a good product. Um, if I want to drive a little bit. The course, the public course in the area that I really love is Forest Hills, um, which is uh, out kind of uh, uh, west of the city away is in Cornelius, which is not a town that many people have heard of, but maybe people have heard of Beaverton and it's kind of more, it's not in Beaverton, but it, but it's, you know, you can drive there pretty easily from Beaverton. Forest Hills is fantastic. That place could be, you know. I don't I'm not suggesting that they do work on that course or that they do a, a restoration or anything because it's really good as it is. But if they did and they did it right, it could be like the best course in Portland. Like it's it's really that good. The bones are that good. I've talked about Forest Hills in nauseam. Um it is it <laughs> I, I think it's good. one of those courses that is overlooked by by people in the Portland area because it is kind of out there. And you have so many other options within the Portland area that most people just don't want to make the trek out there. And which I understand yeah. most of the time, I don't want to make the trek either. It's an hour drive just about from where I am, depending on traffic. And, and that's unpleasant. But it's a great course, isn't it? It's so good. And it's always in really good shape. It gets a little mushy in the winter. That's the only, I would say, downfall because yeah. it is fairly flat it's a little bit older of a course there is some undulation in the in the course but 
it where it is and how when it was built it just wasn't built to drain and so it it does get a little seepy but it, you know when you do catch it the perfect time i don't think there is another course in the area that that beats it especially for the rate yeah. i think you get out there walking rate is between 30 and 45 bucks to play it i mean yeah it's and it, and it's so pretty out there. It's like in the middle of there. There aren't any houses around. It's it's like out in the middle of kind of undulating farm country. It's just beautiful, and and so it's a great little getaway. I, I forgot to mention East Moreland, which is kind of near where I live. That's that's probably the the quickest drive to what I would call a very good golf course. Probably could be an excellent course. I wish they hadn't decided to plant so many trees and and kind of straight lines down each fairway in the, I think they did that probably in the sixties and seventies, but you know, it's a Chandler Egan course and, and the back nine, what was the original nine on the course? I'm sure you've talked about it on the podcast. So I'm probably repeating no. things that people I mean, already know, but, but East Moreland is, is terrific. Yeah. It's a, uh, that, that back nine is, is on a special, special piece of land. I wish they would clear out some of the vegetation. I'm not sure if that's forthcoming, but you can see what that golf course could be, and as it is, very fun place to play. Yeah, speaking to Akbar and and the the guys, uh, um, the uh, Northwest Golf guys, Travis and Zach. I mean, all three of them were on the uh, were on the actual um, list, or they were on the group for the city of uh, city of Portland to and for Parks and Rec and their big their big hang up and why they no longer are on that board is because the city just does not understand the golf side of things when it comes to park and rec and the things that they would bring up and want to change and want to have done the city just doesn't get it and and East yeah. Moreland is one of those places where they've said over and over and over again that if we just clear some of the vegetation out here, it's, it's just going to be known as one of the best public courses in the Pacific Northwest. And again, that back nine has got to be some of the best holes, you know, in public golf in the area. So cool. And, and, you know, so it's 10, 11, kind of around the lake, 12 par three, uh, 13, the par five, yep. Uh, that where you kind of uh, uh, hopscotch on little islands of fairway that are, uh, you know, with ravines kind of wrapping around. If they cleared out some of the blackberry bushes and some of the trees there, you would be standing up on that hill looking out at the rest of the course. And it would be one of the most beautiful holes in American public golf. But as it is, you can't see it because it's surrounded by trees. Um, but if you if you walk there with an eye towards what would this be if the sight lines were opened up a little bit, you start to realize, oh, this is this is like a first rate public golf course here. And so hopefully at some point they'll they'll recognize it. I mean, Chandler Egan's a fairly important architect. You could make the argument to a city council, like imagine if you had uh, a, a a building by a famous arch architect that had fallen into disrepair and just needed a little bit of a touch up. And wouldn't you want to do that? Wouldn't it be kind of uh, an embarrassing thing for a city to have this great building and have it be in, in bad shape? People understand that, but they don't seem to understand that argument when it comes to golf courses as much. 
Well, Garrett, I'm curious from your perspective, like I was just actually, I've been listening to the, because I'm a psychopath, I've been listening to kind of the shotgun start archives. And one of the ones I was listening to was, was, I don't remember what episode it was, but it was Gary player going on a three minute demented dialogue about <laughs> how he was an arborist and all yeah, this stuff. So yeah. I'm curious for you, I, I kind of know from hearing, you know, arguments around it, but for you as someone in the industry, what would you say to someone who's like, you know, like this whole tree debate, right? Tree removal. Like, h- how do we talk about this to non-golfers in a way where we're not trying to be pushy, but we're trying to like, like, how would you make the case if, if we were able to get a meeting with the Portland City Council? What would you tell them? Hmm. I probably wouldn't say anything that would be super convincing because I'm not a very good politician and I probably wouldn't hit the <laughs> points that I should hit because uh, it's such a such a complicated debate and, and you know, narrowing it down is sort of hard. Uh, one thing that people should know about the discussion around tree removal is that it's not an either or. It's not no trees or lots of trees. There's an in-between that I think, of course, like Eastmoreland – should go for. So that's, that's one thing we're, we're, you know, very few people propose that every tree should be eradicated from every golf course. And, you know, the debate gets to this kind of polarized point where people who are in favor of trees think that tree removal people want all trees to be gone. And, and it just becomes unproductive. It becomes like politics, basically. And so I would say that there's an in-between that most golf courses should be striving for. And in the Pacific Northwest, that probably means quite a few trees. There's a lot of trees up here. And so golf courses in the Pacific Northwest should, in most places probably have quite a few trees at a course like East Moreland. What you have is a golf course that added a bunch of non-native trees after well, after it was designed for whatever reason, I don't know why they added them, but the addition of these trees has put a stress on the turf of that golf course. There are many places where the turf is suffering because it does not get sunlight And it has put a damper on the golf that's played there. In order to make Eastmoreland Golf Course the habitat that it should be, where grass can thrive, where trees can thrive, where animals can thrive, and where golfers can have the best time possible, and where, you know, people who are just visiting and and walking through that little kind of garden that they have on the back nine. And I know it has a name. I'm I'm forgetting it right now. But Crystal Lake Garden. And and it's beautiful. If, you know, people's experience of that walk would be so enhanced if they could see around the property a little bit. And if the trees they were, you know, uh, seeing as well were native to that landscape. There are willows out at Eastmoreland. I mean, they just planted stuff there. They didn't have a regard for what trees belong in a Pacific Northwest habitat. And so that golf course should be about what specifically the Pacific Northwest is. It should have native trees and it shouldn't have so many of them that the trees dominate the entire area and and affect the golf in in bad ways so i think that i I, I do something like that and i i don't think the city council would be convinced by that but that's my that's my stance on it 
it, that's one course that every time Ashton's come out, we haven't been able to get a tee time. Either they've had tournaments out there. It's probably the most played course between there, Heron, the and Rose City. I mean, those are probably the three most played courses in the greater Portland area. And and that's the thing is it it's packed. And that's why the city isn't going to touch it or do anything because mm-hmm. they're not losing any money. They're making hand over fist when it comes to the tea sheet being stocked and always full. So the city just doesn't see a need to change anything if there isn't a problem in their mind mm-hmm. because the tea sheet's full all the time. And, and a little bit of that is because where East Moreland is located, it's a 20 to 25 minute drive to any other golf course. So if you live in the city, mm-hmm. you know, outside of Rose City being probably the closest to it, it's really your only option unless you want to drive 30 minutes to, you know, another option. So everybody that lives within the city and most people don't realize East Moreland is probably one of the most affluent areas in Portland. I mean, some of these houses yes. that bo- fancy neighborhood. Yeah. The house is a border. Yeah, and the golf course was sort of part of that plan as well, as I understand it, when it was designed. This was like, it's it's part of this neighborhood. It was imagined as being, you know, not just the golf course in the neighborhood, but the two kind of relate to each and other. And that's where that park side of it comes in, too, because it, you know, mm-hmm. anybody that one of the coolest parts about the course is the hole you were just talking about. When you finish that hole you literally have to walk out onto the sidewalk onto the street <laughs> to get to the next tee yes. box. You know, yep. there, there isn't a walkway yeah. that keeps you on the course. You're legitimately leaving the course and coming back onto it, which is, yeah, you kind of get lost for a second. The first time you play it, you're like, am I headed the right direction? Seems like I'm headed down a street right now. <laughs> normal, normal public golf. There's no signs telling you where you need to go. It's just, you're exactly, figuring yeah. it out on the way. Um, but yeah. it, it's a beautiful property and again things like that would be wonderful to see but i'm also very content with playing what i have with it again we all would love to see these things happen but city-owned municipal courses are probably one of the hardest things as you probably you know being in the industry and and knowing these things with some of the other things that have gone on throughout the country city-owned municipal courses are probably the hardest things to get people on board to change when they're privately owned you're dealing it's like my favorite sharp park baby sharp park yeah they've had a hell of a time trying to trying to get that place uh restored or renovated or or whatever they're able to do considering that uh most of the golf courses is is gone and will have to be permanently gone did just see a video uh, that's uh they they at least kept the golf course right at least richard harris and bo links were able to uh to to keep the golf course a golf course as opposed to being taken over by a developer so that's when we saw one of our one of our close friends actually just posted a video of kind of a digital um, remodel of Sharp, and it seems like hopefully they're headed that way. I mean, with the amount of money that the city of San Francisco is making just based off of Harding Park and the crazy astronomical pricing that they're charging people that come and play it from outside the city, you would hope that the, them owning Lincoln and Sharp, they'd be putting 
some of that money back into those courses so that they could have a trio of, you know, just epic public courses that bring people into the city that want to play. And it's not just left out for Harding. Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it with San Francisco, but that would be great. And I think that what you're describing is the same thing that Portland could do with Eastmoreland. It could be a gem. It could be an attractor. They could upcharge for people who are from out of town if they wanted to, which is the model that, say, Charleston Municipal uh, is following right now after their renovation. They're charging folks from out of town, but they're keeping the rates very affordable for the yeah. local players. And, and they did something really interesting with uh, with the architecture there. So um, I think it's possible. But I also hear what you're saying, where the course is successful. It is fun to play. It's a cool course as it is. And they're, they're, you know, it's packed. The T-sheet is packed. And so who am I to come in and say it's not good enough? So that's that's absolutely valid. So kind of leading into, into a project that you guys have been or that you've been working on, um, teaching turf in Sandhills. Give us a little bit of insight on on that and the project that you guys are doing there. <sighs> Yeah, so it's uh, this is sponsored by by Toro, and uh, you know what what Toro is sort of allowing us to do is is tell stories about the turf industry that that are compelling and that we have complete control over, and and so that's that's been a really good relationship, and so one of the ideas that we came up with for covering the turf industry in a different way was to go document some turf internship programs and and show what it was like for young people to come into the turf industry and to have some of their first experiences working on uh, a maintenance crew at a great golf course. And and so for our first subject in, in what will hopefully be a series that will recur maybe annually, um, we went and saw what this dual internship was like at Ballyneal in Colorado and Sand Hills in Mullen, Nebraska. These are two world-class golf courses. And the internship that those two turf programs offer is uh, unique. You know, uh, students get to spend several weeks at Ballyneal, several weeks at Sand Hills, and they really get an uh, an incredible experience of some kind of truly unique golf courses and turf situations and climates and and all that. And so. Um, these are some of our favorite golf courses uh, in in America, and so we started with that. But also, their their the grounds crews at both of those golf courses are led by a couple of our favorite people. It's Jared Kalina, the superintendent at Ballyneal, and Kyle Hegland, the superintendent at Sandhills. These are folks that we knew beforehand. They're some of the nicest and most talented people in the industry, and so we knew that it would be really good to, to go just sort of uh, arrive for a couple of days at each golf course uh, a few times through the summer, interview the interns, interview Kyle and Jared, and just get a sense for what this turf internship was like, you know, what experience the, the students were getting out of it and what it was like to run these courses, maintain these courses, and some of the challenges that they face, not only locally, but in terms of the kind of national trends in the turf industry. And so it was incredibly interesting to to do it. And uh, now we're just kind of putting the finishing touches on on the uh, the videos and putting them out. We released our first installment last week, and we've got our, our second episode coming out 
tomorrow night, which is going to be Wednesday night. And so, um, yeah, yeah, we're, uh, we're really proud of it and, and it was a lot of fun to do. Yeah. And I thought it was super cool too, how, um, really inclusive in the sense of, you know, <clears throat> your first subject, you know, being like a 30 year old who's kind of finding his path and getting into golf. Cause I think, you know, like I'm, we're both happy in our careers, but I'm not going to lie to you at a moment where I was like watching him and I was like, <laughs> I could do that. Man, that, w- <laughs> that would be really cool. Well, <laughs> and Ashton really cool, and hopefully people can well, watch Ashton that. Ashton went to the University of Georgia, and they have a really good turf program um, out there. And that's one thing yes. Ashton says all the time, where he almost wishes he so minored in turf management because as a senior you get the option to work on two projects and it's either the football field or the golf course <laughs> and which is like what is what, what a senior thesis uh, that's right? it's great like, what's the, the golf course or... at university of georgia so it's it's just called the university of georgia golf course cool it's it's really good yeah i mean it's they had a uh nationwide tour event i say nationwide because it was i don't think they ever got to um corn ferry yeah or web.com so much so that i a couple of months ago there was a company event an adp sponsored thing and i talked to harris english and i literally did the keith pelly scott pelly yip thing i was like I was like, Harris, didn't you, didn't you win there? And he's like, no, nah, that was Hudson. And I was like, damn it. I was like, <laughs> and it literally goes, it happens all the time. And I was like, I'm yeah, so sorry. Yeah, because you guys look exactly alike. Maybe you should look less alike if you don't want people like, to confuse you. I mean, this is, let's think about their responsibility in this situation. Well, they're both from yeah, the South, is, uh, so maybe audio. one of them should. Uh, there, there's Harris in the middle. Uh, Ashton is holding media, up a picture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah of fairness Harris in the middle. Um, but yeah, one of no, them should was, grow uh, a mullet yeah, no, since I, they're I, from I, the I, south. So that that could be exactly. No, dude, that's easy. what I'm talking. It's or easy. just like a mustache, yeah. just something, something to differentiate oh, these guys, two we're, gentlemen. We're, we're forgetting Hudson's a live boy. <laughs> that's true. Like, yeah, they'll yeah. They'll never, never play again. But the so. confusion might have even higher stakes now because people will think that Harris English has has defected that to live. That could be a bad. And, that could uh, be a bad thing. That's a bad reputational thing for Harris and his sponsor. Yeah, this yeah. is true. Yeah. No, <laughs> well, yeah, we were talking I, I, I about definitely... teaching turf in the Sandhills and your your desire yes. to at a late period <laughs> in your career uh, go into uh, turf. And this is what our, our subject in the documentary, Dustin Deland, has done. And we knew he would be a good audience surrogate because a lot of people in our audience, especially on YouTube, are going to be right, right around his age. You know, early 30s, mid 30s. That's that's kind of the sweet spot for the fried egg audience. And, and we knew that people would kind of relate with him. And and so I'm 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 glad that that's uh, turned out to be the case. I don't think it's yeah, ever, it's, it's I don't really think great. it's ever a bad time to you know especially in your 30s late 20s. Something that I did was I completely flipped the script on what I was doing career wise. You know I I did your plethora of sales and marketing jobs throughout my 20s. And, you know, when I married my wife and we were going through, you know, entering into COVID, um, it was one thing that I had a conversation with my wife about that, you know, I really wanted to get back into golf. I played a lot of junior golf, played a lot of competitive golf when I was younger, took a big break through my 20s, really didn't pick up a club through most of my mid 20s. 
just because I was dealing with everything else that was going on in life. And when COVID hit, that was when I decided that, hey, I want to chase my passion. I want to get back into it. And I completely flipped the script. And that's when I started, you know, fitting and building golf clubs. And I started from the bottom, basically running a a build shop in the Bay Area for a company called Golf Mart, which most people know as Edwin Watts or, you know, Mm-hmm. You know they they've got yeah. eighty something. There's a golf mart in uh, Monterey yep. area, isn't there? There's a, a seaside golf yep. mart. I, th- those are my guys. Yeah. Love love that and, shop. And actually, I I really miss that golf, place. That's a that's a good golf, golf shop. mart. Is a very good. I mean, for big box store, it's it's your go to if you're if you're looking for kind of a big box store that carries everything. But then I kind of wanted to step up from there, and that's what led me to what I'm doing now, and. You know, me and Ashton being knuckleheads doing doing the podcast and things like that. So, you know, it, there's Great. never a time in your life that you shouldn't think that, you know, you're stuck where you're at and you can't, you know, change things or chase a dream. You know, you can always mm-hmm. do that. One of our favorite stories is, I don't know, have you ever played Coos Golf Club? Uh, I haven't. I've driven by it many times. I kind of know the story where where you know somebody bought it and they've they've kind of turned it into a, a bit of a hub out there. Yeah, they? so that's um, actually one of our good good buddies, Andre, and his brother brother Paulo. The story is kind of crazy. Andre worked for ESPN up in uh, Seattle. Uh, he was one of the producers for ESPN in C- Seattle. And his brother sent him a Craigslist ad for this golf course in Coos. And the course was selling for like $600,000. And it had a house built on it. It was a massive piece of property. Him and his wife went down there. And two weeks later, the the owner of the course offered it to them at 0% interest at (laughs) $600,000. 0% 0% interest. <laughs> so they, they hard to turn down that offer. Yeah. offer. So basically he splits yeah. his time from Seattle and Coos. He drives back and forth 15 to 20 times a year. Um, his brother lives full time, you know, down there helping with operations, but they've absolutely turned that course completely around. And now most of the caddies that, you know, caddy abandoned, they have left, crossings as their kind of home course outside of the resort and a lot of them play out at coos now and coos is kind of like the home track for for bandon caddies and so it's been a huge change in seeing things like that he was in his 40s with kids that were teenagers in high school and decided to quit his job cush job with espn and chase kind of a dream to own a golf course and run and operate it with his family. And it's just one of the coolest stories cool. in golf. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I joined the fried egg, I was 35. So, um, I'm very familiar with, uh, with a sudden and to many people inexplicable career change. So, uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in that if you can manage it, you know, it's, uh, I, it, it can be a scary thing to do financially. It's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of doubt that comes with a big career change like that. You were on one path toward one kind of life and you decide suddenly to change it, uh, definitely takes a little bit of guts. It's maybe not the smartest decision in the world, but sometimes it really pays off and uh, you only live once. So might as well try. 
Can you tell us more about that, Garrett? Because I know you said you were an English teacher before, but like, how, how did this come to be? How did you end up meeting Andy and, and having this be your career now? Well, I, I've always been interested in writing. Um, I've I've done some editing. Uh, I've uh, you know, I, when I was in school, I, I majored in English in college. I um, went into a PhD program after college uh, in English, and um, that was sort of going to be my career. So this was before career change number one. I was planning to go into academia, but, uh, you know, uh, it's a long story, but I decided not to do that. And I, I started teaching at the high school level and, uh, teaching English and eventually found myself at, at Stevenson school, which is a boarding school in Pebble beach. And when I arrived there, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this job and going to teach English, going to coach water polo, uh, coach swimming. And I'm also going to have on the side something that I'm developing with my writing. I, I wanted to do something in that vein during my summers off and, and make sure that I keep kind of the, the creative side of my life alive. And when I moved to the Pebble Beach area, obviously golf was all around me and uh, I was inspired to kind of get back into the game. Um, Pacific Grove uh, Municipal Golf Course, uh, Pacific Grove Golf Links, as they call it now, which is a little bit grand. But um, that was really the course that that got me back into it, that invited me back into the game. I, I love that golf course. And obviously the Dunes 9 is, is something really special. And uh, so I started playing there a lot. I started playing, you know, with uh, other faculty members at the school and caught the bug again. And uh and so it was kind of a, a, a you know good fit to start writing about golf. And I basically just started a blog and started posting things on it about golf courses and golf course architecture and uh, started a Twitter account where basically I said, hey, please go read my blog. That was essentially what the Twitter account was at first. And it was through that that I got to know Andy. And um, Andy got to a point after he started the Shotgun Start where he wanted to hire somebody else for the company. And uh, he got in touch with me and, and hired me. <laughs> that's, that's the short version of the story, but it's really not any more complicated than that. And it's funny because I just listened to your episode you did with Shane Bacon um, about his child book. And you guys actually talked about how you both started um, kind of in that space where some guys that are a little bit younger than than us um, really don't really know how big blogs were back in the day. Yes. Uh, and it's not even Absolutely. that far back in the day. That's how fast technology changes and social media changes and things like that evolve. But, it, you know, blogs were where you found any of your niche information that you loved about a specific topic. There was a blog for everything, kind of like there's a podcast for everything now. You know, you can literally <laughs> find information or find a topic that a podcast bases itself off of for everything now. And, and blogs were huge. It was kind of your, your median to get your name out there and, you know, really talk about what you love or wanted to talk about. And so that really enlightened me when I heard you and Shane talking about that. And 
how long you guys have been doing blogs and things like that prior to getting to where both of you guys are at right now. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that about Shane Bacon, but yeah, he was one of the OG golf bloggers. I guess Jeff Shackelford is like the true OG golf blogger, but you know, Shane started his blog in like 2008. I started my very small golf architecture blog in like 2015. That was after blogs were already kind of not a thing, <laughs> but it was really the only thing I knew how to do. I had I had done some blogging when I was uh, younger. I, I did some freelance writing about uh, music and film and uh, and literature, and I had a blog that I would kind of you know maintain off and on in addition to kind of sending out articles for publication and things like that, and so. When I got back into golf and when I decided that I was going to do some golf writing, that was my frame of reference. I, that was the only thing I knew how to do. I didn't know how to start a podcast. I didn't know how to start doing videos, uh, for God's sake. I, I still don't really know how to do that. There's other people in the company who take care of the, the visual stuff. The only thing that I really knew how to do was just start a blog and start writing things and putting them up there. And in retrospect, it was really naive probably not the right way to go about it but it it was it was turned out the per to be the perfect way to get to know Andy a little bit because he he started reading my blog I, I was of course familiar with the fried egg it was fried egg was more in its early days when when I started blogging and and we really kind of hit it off just by reading each other's writing and he recognized that you know, just for my writing that I was somebody who could help him edit stuff <laughs> because uh, Andy has, has really great ideas about golf course architecture. But one of the things that he likes to get help with is editing stuff and, and making sure that, that things are formed so that, you know, they can be communicated to, to an audience in as clean as way as clean a way as possible. And that's one of the things, given my background, that I was that I was able to do. And so there was kind of a, a natural symbiosis that that started there. That's very similar to the dynamic of me and Ashton. <laughs> I'm more of uh, in line with Andy. I'm the big picture mm -hmm. idea guy. I throw a lot at Ashton, and then he filters through my bullshit and and picks out the gems that are in there, and then we kind of run with those. So a Ashton is definitely you, and I'm definitely Andy yeah. when it comes to kind of the way we flow and go through I'm things. Perfect. I'm the one who's like, let's have a rundown. And like, I'm over here sweating. I'm like, we're at 57 minutes. We haven't got to this. And <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. I, I was just thinking I, that I, when Chris I'm, was talking about it, day. I was like, man, Ashton, you got to start moving here. Um, no, <laughs> I'll, no, I'll keep my answers it, 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 very brief from now on. No, no. It's more of, I think what it is, I'm sure you guys feel this way. It's more the anxiety of these tend to always go long, if anything. Yeah, but I just more the way I grew up being very kind of type A OCD is like it's like I'm like what if we're just sitting here looking at each other right like what if Gary yeah exactly what if, like, what if we have nothing, nothing to, to talk about like, yeah at least give me something to, to work with <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah like, over you over prepare for things you always got to over prepare 100%. because then Dude. then at least you know because the worst thing is to be underprepared and if you over prepared yeah. then uh, fine you you did a little bit too much work that's not the end of the yeah. world. And did I know that we were going to bond over 25 degree hybrids? I did not. And I'm happy about it. So no, but I think for me looking through kind of the, what the, the, the middle section, the one thing I want to ask you before we kind of get some, some quick hitters and get you out of here, 
you know, we recently listened to you, the pod about what's next to kind of golf course architecture, talking about how, you know, the whole minimalist core Crenshaw, it might be moving more towards the right word, maximalist movement, sort mm-hmm. of like how to find this new area. But forget that for a second. Like, if I just gave you $10 million of working together and I said, Garrett, you can do whatever the fuck you want to do. You can do whatever <laughs> you want to do. What kind of course would you build? Well, what would you do? $10 million. Um, well, whatever. No. How, how about this? No, no budget. Like, no budget. Oh, my God. Style. I need a budget. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is going to sound really cringy and virtuous, but I would just like to make a really basic golf course with some interesting contours and no bunkers that would be super cheap to play and that didn't even necessarily have incredibly interesting architecture in it, but was fun and cheap and there was good movement in the land and you could just go there and play golf because I'm, I'm more and more frustrated by the rising costs of the game. And I realize it's part of an overall picture of what's going on in the world and in the economy right now. But after the COVID period in golf, there was a little bit of hope that the golf industry was kind of returning to its roots and rediscovering some of the things that were important. You know, carts aren't important. Rakes and bunkers aren't important. Maybe we can get rid of this stuff. But I, I'm, I'm sensing kind of a regression to more and more expensive stuff as the kind of threat of the pandemic uh, recedes. We're just kind of making some of the same mistakes. And I'm just not seeing a lot of affordable, basic golf being built. And I'd like to see more of that. And, uh, you know, there are golf courses out there that that kind of fit the description um, you know, there's, I haven't seen it, but the, uh, a course in, in Shaska, Minnesota called the, the loop at Shaska is opening next year. And it's like a really fun kind of short course concept that uh, I think could be, could be, uh, you know, delightful, but I just wish that there were more projects like that. You know, we're getting a lot of kind of incredible architecture at private courses right now. And I don't want to discount that. I think that's really cool work. And I'm glad that architects are getting the opportunity to kind of stretch themselves and, and push the art form. And, you know, that's I, I like that stuff. That's great. Um, but I, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about where public golf is going from here. And I'm a little bit concerned that, you know, public courses that do renovations and do some of the work that, say, Andy and I have suggested that they do on the podcast are using it as a pretext to kind of jack up rates immediately. And so I wish that more courses were prioritizing affordability and just fun. And so, you know, if I if I were to make a golf course, I, I'd, I'd love to have one where I myself would feel comfortable just kind of showing up and going and playing and uh you know i i wish there were there were more of those in the world and again i know that that sounds like i'm uh whatever that uh, that, that that's uh, overly virtuous or something and uh that that's not really what i would do if i were given money to build a golf course but that's uh that's kind of what i feel uh and what i'd like to see more so of. i'm very similar along the lines of you garrett with that and so i i appreciate the mike kaisers of the world that are creating these meccas for people to be able to go to but i'm gonna tell you right now like we're on the west coast and if 
we don't have to fly. We don't have to do all these things to get to Bandon. You know, us being in Oregon, it's a four or five hour drive, depending on where you're at. And it's still going to cost you 1500 bucks to, to spend, you know, four or five days there to play all the courses and, and really dive deep into there. And that's really out of the range for most golfers in, in the world to be able to afford something like that. And one guy that I have been harping that I love that a lot of people outside the West Coast don't know of as an architect is Dan Hickson. And I really love what he's doing on the public golf side of things with Bandon Crossings in uh, Wine Valley. And my favorite new course that he's done is Bar Run. And Bar Run. Yeah, just opened uh, 18 holes yep. this year. And I got to play, go out there and, and talk to him for a couple hours and play the preview before they opened up the entire course. And the rate that they're charging the the little you know cottages that they're putting on the first hole it being an rv park and you know the everything about what they're doing there is the essence of what i love about public golf and exactly what you were kind of saying it's it's not the most intricate crazy design that i've ever played but the undulations and the green complexes and what he's done with the piece of land that he was given inside of a rock quarry is so good. And for the price that you pay to go out there and play, which is I think between 60 and 70 bucks to play is just, I mean, we need more of that. And, and I love what Dan is doing. And Dan's story on the other hand is just awesome because you know, he started out as a PGA pro and just literally changed the name on his door to architect from PG. Like he didn't mm-hmm. train anywhere. He, yeah, he was out of Columbia Edgewater, yeah. right? Yep. And his uh, his parents were and his dad was, I, I believe, a pro himself. And yeah, Dan is one of the one of the great guys in the golf industry and, and a super talented architect. Uh, you know, Sylvie's Valley Ranch is also more of his work. But one thing that Dan has done that I'd love to see more of, you know, he represents a lot of the things that I think are, are kind of lacking right now, golf architecture. He just kind of shows up at public courses, local courses, and does a little, does a few things here and there, gives them some help. He did some really cool stuff at Laurelwood, which is a, a nine hole course in Eugene. That's, I just um, played where, that. you know, it wasn't like a big renovation. Yeah. Did you meet Will Benson, the, the superintendent I there? He's, I just uh, he's went a out great, secretly, great guy. You know, paid my dues and went out and played it. And it, yeah. I played that the same day that cool I played Diamond Woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's a, there's some, there's some cool little places uh, out there, but uh, yeah, I mean, Laurelwood is, uh, it's great because all, all they really did was change a couple of holes. They just made a, a couple of alterations to holes. They they did a, a bit of a reroute, rebuild a couple of greens to to solve some safety problems. And Dan Hickson was helping him. And Dan basically went out there in the bulldozer and not, not a whole lot of other help and shaped a couple of greens. And they turned out great because, you know, hell, Dan Hickson's on a bulldozer making these greens. They're going to turn out pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, it didn't cost a lot. They're looking to do maybe a few other things, but uh, th- those are the sorts of kind of low cost renovations that I'd love to see because Laurelwood didn't raise its rates because it rerouted, didn't raise them much at least. A- and it, 
but the golf course became better. They're making that golf course better all the time. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's the kind of stuff I, I really love to see. So outside of Dan, who would you say, you know, might be unknown or might be up and coming in the architecture realm, um, that, that you would put, you know, your thumb on and say they're, they're doing what should be done for the golf industry and it's going to help sustain the industry. Well, geez, I mean, it's, I'm not sure who people have heard of and, and who people haven't heard of. If we're talking just kind of outside the, the big four, outside of Corin Crenshaw, Tom Doak, um, David Kidd, and Gil Hance. And, you know, to be fair, all of those golf architects that I just mentioned do some good local work too. You know, Gil Hance is going to do some stuff at West Palm Beach um, in, in Florida and has been involved in some local projects. Tom Doak has, you know, consistently lent his services to kind of off the wall local projects. Common Ground is a great model of, of what, you know, a, a public golf course can, can be. And, uh, and he's also helping at East Potomac out in Washington, D.C. So I don't want to discredit what those ar- architects have offered at the local level, giving up their rates and, and just doing some, um, some fun architecture. But, um, an architect who thinks a lot about local courses and about what a community golf course should look like and, and can be is Andy Staples. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's done mainly renovation work, but he has an original course out in New Mexico called Rockwind Community Links. And Rockwind embodies a lot of the things that Andy talks about when it comes to local courses. People should look it up. Um, he also did an incredible renovation of Meadowbrook Country Club. That's a, a private course just outside of Detroit. Um, and that shows kind of what Andy is capable of in terms of architecture. But uh, he's also somebody who's very willing to work with public and local and municipal courses and not only make the golf course better, but also connect the golf course with the community and offer some services to the community that bring people into the course. And so uh, I, I think Andy is a great thinker about that, that, that people should look up. But, you know, a number of other architects do do cool work at the local level as well. Brian Schneider, I know, was helping out at Glen Golf Park, I think it's called, in Madison, Wisconsin, which is a project that was funded by the Kaiser family, by, by Michael Kaiser, uh, the, you know, Mike Kaiser's son. And uh, I think that's going to turn out really cool and, and and Schneider was out there quite a bit. So th- there's some fun little things happening here and there. I don't want to portray it as though, you know, the the local golf architecture scene is dead. It's just that it's a little more rare. Um, but in terms of somebody who, who thinks about this stuff all the time and has a nice worked out philosophy of local golf, uh, Andy Staples would probably be my guy. And leaning off of that, you know, one, one thing that we we always kind of you know there's been so many eras of golf course architecture one thing that we wanted to ask you is if you had to choose an era to live in or to be able to be in with new courses being built what era of architecture would be your staple time frame for you to be able to live in when it was up and coming and that could be modern or it could be all the way back to the 1800s or early 1900s. <laughs> yeah, it would be hard not to go back to 
old Tom Morris to, to go back to like the 1870s when he was really traveling around and doing his thing. And that would be fascinating. It would be like going back and, and meeting Shakespeare or something. You'd find out a lot that people don't know. You know, nobody really has a good idea of what Shakespeare's life was like. And I think that we're similarly you know, we know more about old Tom Morris uh, because he was a relatively modern figure and, and there's been a lot of stories told about him. But uh, I, I'm not sure that, you know, he didn't leave behind any writings of his own, really, for instance. And so um, it'd be fun to meet him. But I, I kind of got off on a tangent there. But where I'd really like to be, and this is a place and a time, is the the U.K., the British or the really the English golden age. People often think of the golden age of golf architecture as being the, the tens, twenties and thirties. And that's true in America. That's the U S golden age of golf course architecture from basically when CB McDonald, uh, opened national golf links to when the Lido shut down, you know, in the thirties, uh, during the depression, those are, those are kind of the bookend points of the U S golden age. The golden age of golf architecture, I think, happened earlier in Great Britain with Harry Colt and Tom Simpson and Abercrombie and other architects like that doing really interesting work in England, in the Heathlands. And uh, a lot of that was done in the first decade of the 20th century. And to me, that time period in that place is so interesting because basically they were inventing a new kind of golf course architecture. And I would just like to to talk to those people. What they did was highly influential in the U.S. Golden Age. It's many of the architects who came up in that scene, like Alistair McKenzie, ended up being very influential in the U.S. in the 20s and 30s. And so where it really started was with people like John Lowe and Harry Colt in England in the first decade of the 20th century. They really kind of rethought the whole thing. And they're very, very intelligent people. Uh, would have just been fascinating to talk to them and to to see them do work. Perfect. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I, it, just thinking about going back and, and being able to kind of be a fly on the wall for the old Tom Morris stuff would be fascinating. Yeah. What? But yeah. Because how, how did he dream. really design golf courses? What was he really thinking? Like we don't know. All these golden age architects yeah. wrote exactly what they were thinking. Like Alistair McKenzie, Harry Colt, just told us what their philosophy was. <laughs> old Tom Morris didn't do that. I don't know. Like he obviously had something going on, but I'm not sure what it was. Yeah. We needed Garrett Morrison by his side, documenting and writing down <laughs> what he was saying out there. I'm willing on his on his mule, I guess, sir. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, to get us out here, these will be more quick hitters. You know, as an homage to Shotgun Star, to talk about the Cameron Zone. We'll call this uh, kind of the favorite zone. The favorite here. zone. Um, I'm curious for you. you know, we talked about episode. Like since you've been at the Fried Egg, what has kind of been your favorite piece of content? Whether episode, video, like what is the project that you're kind of most proud of or like yeah you finished that up and you're like that is something i'm really really proud of well as far as content that i uh headed up i think that the series that we released earlier this year on uh robert trent jones it's a three-part podcast series was uh it's something that i'm really proud of and you know, I, I, I hope that uh, people enjoyed, um, took a lot of time to put it together and I learned a lot in the process. And I think that it, it represented kind of, you know, 
some development in terms of our ability to produce a narrated documentary style podcast and um it's it's called the open doctor and his monster three episodes and uh that was something that that i was that i was really happy to put out um and as far as something that other folks at my company have done you know cameron hurtis uh, is kind of edits our videos and produces our videos and uh and he's really fantastic with that i loved as far as a particular podcast episode andy's interview with don Plasic from earlier this year um, maybe it was late last year was really, really fantastic. He's the maps guy, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All things maps. I, I thought that, yeah, I thought that was such Instagram, a great podcast. I, I loved uh, Don Plasic in that podcast. I thought it was just fantastic. Yeah. I'm curious, Gary, how long like that, that three part open doctor series, how long did that take you from like, I mean, it, how long did you spend on it that? took way too long. It, it, uh, it, geez, I mean, I worked on it off and on, like I, I was doing other stuff at the company, but um, yeah. in total, I started it in December of 2021, and we released it, I believe, in June, maybe, of this wow. year. So I was, it was on my mind for a good six months. Yeah. Wow. That's... Okay, favorite public course in the state of Oregon. Is that Forest Hills or is that a different answer? Man, I, I mean, uh, uh, well, would you consider Bandon Trails to be a public yeah. course? If anybody oh, can okay. pay to play it and it's accessible to the public, we consider it public. Sure. Yeah, I, I would too. Yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah, that's the definition. But sometimes, you know, public carries the, the connotation of, you know, maybe a little more affordable than a pure resort course. But yeah, abandoned trails is, I mean, that's a, that, that place is a, a masterpiece. But in terms of the Portland area, yeah, Forest Hills would, would be the one. And then if, yeah, I got to give you guys a shout out for the, for, sorry, Chris, for, for the, for the guides. Uh, we, we have not, I, I, we, I have not played trails yet, but the way you kind of explained the, holes in the meadow versus hole. Like, yeah, I have not seen that place yet, but I feel like going into, it, I already have a sense of place that I don't know that I even would have realized that. So I thought cool. all of those guides have been interesting, but that was the one where it was like, Oh, like out, like what was it out of one and one and 18 around the dune, then you go to the meadow. And it was like, okay, there's a real sense of place here that I don't think I would have noticed without that specific video. So I thought that one, they've all been great. Like, of course, love the pasta tiempo one, cool. but the trails one where I was like, this is going to make me view this experience differently when I go play this course. Well, thanks. That, that, that's great to hear. So no borders on this question, favorite public course that you've played anywhere. And that doesn't have to be Period. in the States. Mm. Well, I've played most of my most of my golf in the states. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, so I haven't been to Scotland. I, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a fraud. You didn't go on that trip. I did not go did on that go trip. Those guys see? just went gallivanting across Scotland and left me at home. And and they're assholes is is what my take on that is. But uh, no, yeah, now Cameron, Andy, and and Brendan got to uh, go to Scotland. They did a great job, kind of documenting that trip. But um, yeah, so uh, uh, I, I would focus on the U.S. and uh, probably, probably my favorite public course here is is Wild Horse Golf Club in Nebraska. Sheesh. I think that that place is one of the best courses in the country. Probably one of the public best or private episodes you guys have done too. That that episode was fantastic. On Wild that was Horse. a. <laughs> 
that was a fried egg guide as well. Yeah. Yeah. We were sitting there in, in one of the cabins at, at uh, wild horse talking about the course and we had just played it. Basically it was fresh in our minds and man, that golf course is astonishing. I don't, I, I think it's underrated. I mean, a lot of people talk about it, but when they talk about it, they're usually like, Oh yeah. In terms of affordable public courses, that's like one of the best ones. I'm like, no, in terms of golf courses in the country, private awesome. public whatever that is one of the best ones like it's seriously that good and i i think that maybe it's a little bit less spectacular than some of the top rated um private courses in in the country if we're talking about like sand hills golf club which is consistently considered to be a, a top five or top 10 american course but man that it's so well designed the land is is beautiful ideal every hole is strong um yeah i would i would go to bat for that courses i, I think my favorite public course i mean obviously the banded ones you know i could equal i could just as well say banded trails to that question too so there there were two episodes that probably got me most excited that you guys have done to to go and play these court these two courses and one was the wild horse episode that you guys did but earlier kind of in the the friday you got or andy did an episode on lasonia and uh-huh. so yes. when I went and trained with Club Champion in Chicago, I was the only guy that they gave a rental car. And so I decided <laughs> on my day off, because we only got one day off a day while we were out there training, I drove all the way to Lasonia and played. And man, that was that was completely worth the drive. And everything that Andy kind of put up on a pedestal when he talks about that golf course i mean it all stood you know stood tall and it was so yeah it, it being from the west coast it's a course in style of architecture i have never been able to experience in my entire life because the west coast we have a variety of courses and styles but it it's all it it's all relative there there's like three or four kind of styles in on the west coast that kind of is a encompassing theme that you see outside of yeah. bandon and some of these outliers but lasonia was something that i've never been able to experience and it's hard for me to explain to people how different you have to play in in those type of architectural, you know, gems that you find. And it, it just blew me away. And I'm so excited to get out to wild horse because how you guys speak about it, you don't get, you guys get excited about courses, but there's particular courses that, that we as listeners can tell that you guys are particularly right. really excited about. Yeah. Yeah. And the ones from this year for me were wild horse and, and Cape Arundel in uh in in maine those were the ones that i might probably just like i was most surprised by i expected good things going into them and they over delivered so yeah um love love wild horse so since you guys host um one of your guys fried egg events out at soul park the week before we host our our cookout (laughs) um the boomerang the boomerang um, what would you say your favorite hole is at Soul Park? Uh, okay, so this is a tough question. I think I would go 
with uh, seven, par four, kind of going up the hill, big, big bunker on the left, which, uh, you know, in order to shorten the hole, it's a pretty, pretty longish hole, especially kind of going up the hill. You, you want to have maybe a, a shorter iron instead of, you know, for me, it would be like if I if I played out to the right to the outside of the dog leg on that hole, I'd have uh probably a, a, a six or a seven iron or something like that. And if I take on the bunker, I might, might get myself a nine iron or a wedge, but you do not want to be in that bunker. It's super nasty. And then the green is just fantastic. The way that it's sighted, the way that the mountains are behind it, the way that the barranca is behind it. And then the internal contours in that green might be the most interesting of any green on the course. So, so yeah, really love seven. I think uh, also nine is nine is super That's cool. Where I was but, go. Um, nine is my favorite hole on the course. Yeah. And most of the people that yeah. came, you know, everybody loves the punch bowl. I think number five at its soul. Yeah, that's five. The- yeah, the the punch bowl. And then, uh, well, the par five before that, number four, would also be one that would be in the running for me. I, I love that green. I think that's a a really unique green complex on, on four. It's like basically a big ridge running through the middle of a boomerang uh, green. And that's where then the name of our event came from. Uh, so really think that is a, that's a cool hole as well. I love that. And, and so because it's such a big talking point within the, the shotgun start, we have to ask, what are your feelings on rotisserie chicken? <laughs> okay. So <laughs> well, people know the background on this. I feel like this is, uh, I'm telling you, we have a lot of people is... <laughs> that are listeners of the shotgun start and fried egg. So yeah. if you guys so don't shotgun, know, sorry. so Brendan Porath hates, hates rotisserie yes. chicken. Yeah, he he viscerally hates. Well, you know what? He it's exaggerated the extent to which he hates rotisserie chicken. But he just he went on a rant one time about how disgusting rotisserie chicken is, just because Andy mentioned that he had gone to get a rotisserie chicken for dinner one night, and Brendan was like, "I'm going to take this moment to burn you down." Yeah. Um, but uh, well, for context, it's it, it's when his it's when his baby brand new daughter like blew out a diaper <laughs> on date night, and so like it was also like, so instead of his date, he got go a rotisserie chicken. Oh. That's funny. Okay. You know, so here's the thing. When Brendan talks about rotisserie chicken, what he says is that on its own, it's pretty disgusting. Only when you put it in its proper context, is it acceptable? And I would just moderate that a bit to say on its own, rotisserie chicken is pretty disappointing. It's not, not the thing to do, but if you put it in a sandwich if you put it in a stew, it's quite good and very convenient. And as long as you get a nice Costco rotisserie chicken that you aren't just showing up at some random grocery store and getting some shitty rotisserie chicken, then then you'll be all right. So uh, so that that would be my take on it. What about you guys? Actually, I sent Ashton a picture. I actually ate a Costco rotisserie chicken on Monday and. I think you're on the same same level where, you know, the Whole Foods or the Costco or a little bit more upscale um, places to go get it. Don't don't walk into your local. We're on the West Coast, so I'm going to say Safeway. Safeway isn't, you know, outside of the West Coast, but, you know, Safeway is not the place you want to go or Albertsons or any of those local grocery stores like 
Yes. They're disgusting. Don't get the rotisserie chicken at Food for Less. No, they you know? they cook them in the morning yeah. and they sit there in the under a hot yeah, light for exactly. the entire day. So by the time you're it's Nasty. dinner time, it's dried out and gross. Um, but with Costco, there's a million people that run through there every day, so they're putting new chickens out like every two hours. Yeah. So you're getting something fresh. Same with Whole Foods isn't going to keep out a bunch of really nasty stuff. So I, I think it's particular you where you go. But yeah, I think I think Brandon or Brandon yeah. was a little bit of uh, you know eccentric <laughs> when he went in on his on his rotisserie rant, but. Well, the, the the whole reason I was the moron who transcribed it though was it was actually nothing artisanal chicken. It was that to, to Andy's point, he misremembered. Like he said that it was purely about the presentation. Where if you read again what I transcribed, like an idiot. Um, <laughs> He was going in on the rotisserie chicken, but what I have to do is, and maybe you can communicate this to him for me, or next time you're in the Bay Area, hear it. Uh, Zuni Cafe here in San Francisco. I think it used to have I mean, a next time he's star in or Cal- like adjacent to... Not Central California. Next time oh, right. Garrett's in North Yeah, there Cal- you go. <laughs> That's a whole other terrible <laughs> take. But Z- Zuni Cafe is like basically supposed to have... Um, basically like the best rotisserie chicken in the world like people go there okay. it's like a like people will go there before the opera or like the more like suit and tie it's like a french restaurant <laughs> and like what you get is the rotisserie chicken and fries there wait people so, could be go eat rotisserie chicken and then go to the opera yes wow san francisco look up, is a wild after, place after we hang up look up zuni cafe <laughs> i will i'm on, sure it's delicious uh, it's you know very very elevated i actually haven't had it because you have to allow 90 minutes them to cook it <laughs> but maybe there, maybe there can be kind of like a meeting in the middle of you know brendan can only have yeah. michelin star but then here's the deal though if we tell brendan there's there's you know michelin star dessert chicken he's gonna be like you yuppie san francisco yeah. like, and he's, he's gonna, gonna be gonna, right that's that the thing is that you're not gonna be able to deny right. the the correctness of of no. that attitude yeah <laughs> he's correct yeah well, Garrett, we thought this was going to be like 45 minutes, oh, man. been an hour and a half. Oh, man. Cannot cannot thank you enough, especially with the wife and kids getting home. So thank you so much for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. Pleasure to talk with you guys. Uh, thanks for inviting me on. Absolutely. And Garrett, awesome. when the weather gets better, because of course we're in the Pacific Northwest and it's like 33 degrees outside, um, me and you are going to have to go out <laughs> and, and hit the course and and go out and play when Ashton comes back up here in the spring. That'd be great. Just would love it. Me and Garrett just hitting, hitting, hitting 25 degree hybrids. Just launching them straight up in the air, you know, <laughs> landing soft on the green. It's going to be beautiful. All right. Garrett, thank you well, so thank much. You, Garrett. Have a great night. Okay. You guys too.